to be back with you today. I want to thank you for your uh, prayers. And I realize if you've uh, only been coming to the church since maybe July, you're wondering, who is this guy? Uh, I'm the pastor. I don't take the summers off and the falls and, uh, and the spring, too. But I knew when the welcome team accosted me in the parking lot, it had been a long time since I was here. <laughs> I want to thank, uh, thank you for your prayers, though, and uh, I appreciate that. Uh, I had a surgery on my knee, and uh, I want to thank my wife, who had to care for two disabled men for several weeks, and uh, I, she certainly gained at least one more crown in heaven from that. Uh, I've been watching the services online. C.S. Lewis said about corporate worship, he said, our corporate worship, when we gather, is just a shadow of what's happening in heaven. Well, if that's true, then watching on a computer or on the television, and no offense to those who have to that are watching now, but it's a shadow of the shadow of worship. It's not the same, and I very much look forward to seeing you face-to-face and being with you today, especially as we have the Lord's Table, uh, which we try to do on the first Sunday of every month. And so the message hopefully will lead us toward that. Today we're looking at Philippians chapter 1, the opening verses. If you turn there, it's on page 980 in in the Bible in the pew. And I'll read beginning in verse 1 of, of Philippians. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray together. Father, you tell us that all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Use it now toward that end in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I very much uh, in recent years have enjoyed the books, some of the books by David McCullough, like 1776. Um, I guess my favorite was the Wright Brothers. Uh, but I especially benefited from the path between the seas, which described the building of the Panama Canal. Uh, you know about that building of that canal, one of the largest and most difficult engineering projects in history. It is a 48-mile ship canal which connects the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. The concept, you may be surprised to find that the concept of the Panama Canal or a canal in that area goes back to the 1500s. But it was not given serious effort until the latter 1800s when the French began to try to build a canal in that general area. 
But that effort was abandoned after almost 22,000 workers died, mainly from landslides, but also from malaria and yellow fever. So then the United States in 1904 uh, took up the effort for a second time. And over a course of 10 years, the Panama Canal uh, was completed. Rather than 22,000 lives being lost, such as with the French, there were roughly 5,600 lives lost in the construction of the canal. Since the canal was opened uh, at that time, over 100 years ago, about 110 years ago or so, annual shipping has gone from 1,000 ships a year going through the canal to well more than 15,000 per year now. It's continued to be expanded as ships get larger and larger. But that was a massive, earth-changing, history-changing, very, very, very big project. Do you finish what you start? Do you look around uh, your apartment or your house or your office and you see mounds of half-finished projects? <laughs> uh, God always finishes what he starts. And that's part of what the Apostle Paul addresses here in these opening verses to this well-known letter. Philippians is probably one of the most read portions of the entire Bible, maybe because it's short. It's just four brief chapters, maybe because there are no major problems being dealt with, like those in Corinth or those in Galatia. Philippians is not written to deal with any kind of heresy or immorality that was going on. And here, even in these opening words, he talks about how grateful he is for them. Paul and Timothy and Silas had gone there that really wasn't their destination. They were passing through Philippi some 10 years before this was written, around the year 50 AD or so. And they were going through there, and we read in Acts chapter 16 how the church was begun with really some tumultuous circumstances. On a Sabbath day, the Jewish Sabbath, which was Saturday, Paul and, and Timothy and Silas went outside of the city gates and they went down by a river where they assumed there would be people gathered for prayer. And there were. There were uh, a large number of women that had gathered there for prayer and Paul took the opportunity to explain to them the gospel, the scriptures, and how Christ was the Messiah and the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And while they were there, a woman named Lydia came to faith in Christ. Now, Lydia was a, a businesswoman, and she was a seller of dyes, which could be very precious and very valuable at that time. She invites them into her home, and they come to her house, and so while they are in Philippi, they basically use Lydia's house as their base of operations. Now, also, what happened soon after this is Paul was being followed by a woman who was a fortune teller. And she was possessed by some kind of spirit, some kind of demonic spirit that he cast out of her. And when he did so, she lost the ability to tell fortunes, which was making money for her master. And he saw that his cash cow was no gone was now gone, and so he had Paul and Timothy thrown into prison. 
While they're in prison about midnight, it tells us in Acts 16, they are singing and praying, and they're singing hymns of praise to God, and the other prisoners are listening to them. And God sends an earthquake. Hey, this, isn't this normal church planting stuff? I tell you, it's, I mean, it's almost a bizarre chapter on things that happen with the planting of the church. The earthquake causes the, the prison doors to be open. The guard in the dark assumes all the prisoners have escaped, which meant he would have been put to death for that. He would have been executed as a Roman guard for that. He's about to kill himself. And Paul and, Paul and Timothy say, don't, don't do yourself harm. We are still here. He calls for lights to be bring, torches, whatever, to be brought there. And he takes them. He asks how he can be saved. I mean, it's the textbook conversion in the, in the New Testament, the Philippian jailer. He, come, he professes faith in Christ. He takes them to, their, to his home. He washes their wounds. He, his family is there. He gives them food. And his, his family, the whole family, the household is baptized. Then from there, we find that it's now 10 years later. Paul and Timothy moved on shortly after that, and now he's writing back this letter. And he begins, as he often does, by the way they would write letters in, Paul and Timothy, servants or slaves of Jesus. Now in those days, a person could become or would become a slave, same word as servant in that context, by one of three ways, either by conquest, military conquest, uh, by birth, if you were born to slaves, you were a slave. The third way would be because of debt. If you were indebted to another person, you could not pay it, at least not for a long time. You would become that person's servant or slave for a period of time to pay back that debt. And some sold themselves or their children into slavery just because of debts that were owed. Now, the Bible says you and I and all people are slaves to sin. And for the same similar reasons, we are slaves to sin. One, sin conquers us. We are born into it, and we are sinners by debt. The account which can only be paid, the wages of sin, is death, with death. The death of Christ pays our debt for sin, which is owed, and we are set free. But he declares there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Now, having been freed from the debt of sin, we submit ourselves back to Christ as his slaves, as his servants. So Paul and Timothy are saying that they have, they have sold themselves out to the ownership of the Lord Jesus. We all serve something or somebody, whether we realize it or not. You're either a slave of, to sin or you're a slave to Christ, we're told in the Bible. Then he gives three points of gratitude for these brothers and sisters. He's thankful for their fellowship in verses 3 and 4. He says, I, I give thanks. I thank God for you. He was thankful for their friendships and their fellowship because he saw it was a blessing from God. It was not an accident. Paul never functioned as a loner, uh, not like many of us try to do today. Never. Uh, I was reading yesterday the last chapter of the book of Romans. In the last chapter of the book of Romans, he sends greetings to more than 30 people by name. And then at the end of one of the pastoral epistles to Timothy, come before winter. 
Uh, he says that twice there, saying, please come, come as soon as you can. Uh, he needed his fellowship. So Paul thanks God for the fellowship and the friendship of these, of these Philippian believers. When I talk to men, and it's a standard question, I've asked some of you this, and I may ask you in the future, I say, hey, tell me how you're doing in your walk with Christ. How, are you growing? How would you describe your, your Christian walk right now? Are you growing? Are you stagnant? Are you, are you going backwards? And if men tell me, well, I'm really stagnant or I'm going backwards, my first question typically is, do you have supportive fellowship in your life? Do you have supportive fellowship, especially from other men, other Christian men in your life? The old example, going back to Campus Crusade for Christ many years ago, was like logs in a fire. If you put the logs, if you're building a fire in a fireplace or in a campfire, you put the logs together, they burn brightly, but if you just spread them out, put one log over here, one log over there, one log over there, in a very short time they go out. A simple illustration that we need one another, and Paul gives thanks to that. The other day, uh, one of my closest friends that has preached here before, John Musselman, who lives in Atlanta, he, he uh, we use the term formally, he discipled me when I was a high school student. I looked to him as my spiritual father who got me on my feet walking with Christ. And I'd call, we had set up a Zoom meeting uh, the day before I had surgery uh, just to catch up and to talk. Honestly, I won't say I didn't know if I'd die or not. <laughs> so I thought this was my last meeting. Sorry, Barbara, I had to had to say it. I, had, I didn't tell her that, but I was doing all these like you know, you know when you get the most done is the day before you go on vacation. You know, if I, if I die in a car wreck, I, I've got to get all right, the insurance policies. Everything's here. So I had this Zoom meeting with John, and we uh, we visited for about an hour and, and caught up on, on various things. Well, he called me this week. He said, I waited to call you because I wanted to wait until you could pay attention and we could talk and you were feeling like it. And uh, he, he, he just asked, he said, how, how are you? How, how is Barbara? How is Stephen? How, how's your family? And in a minute. And that night I told Barbara, I said, you know, I'm really so thankful for him. But then I was studying this passage and I said, you know, really the thankfulness should go to God. Because if you've got supportive Christian fellowship in your life right now, that's a gift from God. So yes, be thankful for one another, but even as Paul said, I thank God for you. I thank God for how he's used you in, in my life. So do you thank God for the Christian fellowship you have in your life? Also, be the person who gives that supportive fellowship to someone else. That's another subject. Let's move on to the second thing he's thankful for. He's thankful for their partnership in the gospel. They had experienced grace from God. They had believed in Christ as a redeemer. They had trusted in the gospel message, and now they had become partners or participants. There's a world of difference between being a spectator and being a participant. Television has made us a nation of spectators. We watch sports. And somehow or another think that we are really doing something. We watch hurricane. The other night I'm watching the hurricane and I'm eating a sandwich on my sofa. <laughs> am I participating or am I a spectator? But watching is not the same as participating. So you can come to worship like this. You can know the Bible. You can 
have a pedigree of a Christian family and all that, and yet strictly be a spectator and not a participant. To participate means that you understand, like Lydia, you understand, you believe, you embrace the message, and then you participate in it. And third, I'll go quickly as we come to the Lord's table, he's thankful for their perseverance. He was certain, as he says in verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will complete it. He will finish what he has started. Imagine this, hypothetically. Imagine you have three friends, uh, and you've grown up with them. You know, it's kind of, you know each other like better than, than you know yourself. And one is very idealistic and kind of the dreamer, real creative, but rarely follows through, rarely has the means to follow through with ideas. The second one uh, is, is very determined, but has limited resources. And the third person, if this person says I'm going to do it, it gets done. So this first person one day says to you, I'm going to build a house. I've been thinking about it, and I, I, uh, I've decided to, to build a house, and I, I want to do this over the next year. And you say, well, that's great. And you walk away, and you're thinking, that'll never happen. I know him. And next week, he'll be on to something else. The second person says, I've decided to build a house next year. And you say, that might happen, but he probably doesn't have the money to do it. I mean, I've known him too long, and he, he has great desire, but he just doesn't have the resources. The third person says, I'm going to build a house next year. And you tell yourself, that house is built. I know, I know him. And if he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it, and he's got the resources to make it happen. When Paul says, I am confident that he who began a good work in you will perfect it, his confidence is not based on them. It's not based on, I know that God's begun a good work in you, and I know he's going to complete it because of who you are. You're a determined person. You're a disciplined person. You're a person that once you set your mind to something, you always follow through. No, what's his confidence built on? Speak to me. Him and God. He's confident that God will perfect what he has done. Now, that's good news for us, isn't it? When you wonder, will I finish strong? Will I deconstruct? Will I uh, abandon the faith? Am I a stony ground hearer from the parable of the sower? Will, will the things of the world grow up and choke out what God's doing in my life? You can have confidence, not in yourself, but in God, who's the one who begun this work and will complete it. In fact, the word complete means he's putting the finishing touches on. Last thing, he begins the work, he inaugurates it, and then he will bring it to completion. When? At the day of Christ Jesus. That's the day of Christ's return. That's the day in the Bible when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. We all wonder at times, why is God doing this in my life? Why, is, is Justin led us in prayer earlier, whether it's grief or grieving or uh, concerns with health. Uh, it could be a thousand different things. Why is God doing this? Well, I know that it's supposed to work together for good, but I don't see it. It doesn't make any sense to me. Well, as a pastor, I could tell you this. I have no idea what the specific reasons are in your specific case, but I do know this. He is using this to prepare you for that day of Christ Jesus, and it's some kind of finishing touch that he's putting in your life right now 
toward that end. And that work will not be complete until then. So if you're 15 years old today, you say, well, when will, when will I be Christ-like? Or if you're 90 years old today, it will be the day of Christ Jesus. But God is working up until that point, up until that point to bring it to completion. What is becoming the largest sculpture in the world, some of you have seen, you visited there, is in the Black Hills of South Dakota. And it's on top of a 600-foot block of granite. And it's a massive figure of Chief Crazy Horse, the Lakota warrior who in 1876 defeated General George Custer at Little Bighorn. And Korzak Zilowski, who died at age 74 in 1982, he, he, along with some of the First Nations people wanted to create a monument 10 times larger than the one he had helped to create at Mount Rushmore. The sculpture is 563 feet high, and it's of the bare-chested Indian warrior on horseback. You've probably seen it. It's got his face. It's got his arm like that. It's got the head of a horse when it's eventually to be finished. Now, Korzyaski his last words to his family before he died in 1982 were, Crazy Horse must be finished. You must work on the mountain, but go slowly and do it right. So then the work was continued under the supervision of his widow, Ruth. She died in 2014, but before she died, she said, It may not be done in my lifetime or in my children's lifetime, but it will be finished. This I guarantee. God will finish the work that he's begun in you. And he will do it right up until the time of Christ's return. That will be the point of completion. So as we come to the Lord's table, it's a reminder as it is a sign and it is a seal that God is at work in our lives.